Have you ever wondered why? It's one of the deepest questions, isn't it? Little kids ask their parents, why this? Why is the sky blue? It might be the most silly thing, mightn't it? Why do you make a cup of tea like that? Or why is this the way it is? Or usually when it's kids, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to tidy my room? But it actually goes a lot deeper, isn't it? It goes because we all ask why. We go through life thinking, actually, why anything? And why everything? Why is there stuff? Why am I here? What, what is my purpose? So going from the very kind of childish question, it actually puts its finger on something a lot deeper that we all feel. And we all ask this question, why? And it's a question that is cranked up, isn't it, when we go through harder times. When we go through suffering, sometimes the only thing we can think about is why? Why? Maybe asking God, why this suffering? So why anything? And why suffering? And the fact that we ask this question is basically comes from us not knowing, isn't it? We wouldn't ask if we didn't know, if, if we knew. But instead we don't know. We don't know why we're here. We don't know why there's trees and the sky's blue or I have to tidy my room or why I'm going through a really hard time right now. We wouldn't ask the question if we didn't know. Because we don't know. But what this passage says here is that there is a reason, there is a purpose, there is an answer to all of our questions of why. Even from the little child saying, why is the sky blue? It's funny, isn't it? I know I keep on going back to that, but we often do answer little children with their why questions, don't we? But how do we answer their questions of why? Well, we take their question of why as a question of how, don't we? They say, why is the sky blue? And we tell them something about light refracting in the atmosphere. That explains kind of how the sky is blue, but doesn't say the purpose of it, does it? Or why do you, why do you make a cup of tea that way? Well, we, not so much. It's just the way that you do it. It's not so much purpose. I suppose the purpose in it is, that's the way I like my tea. But... We, are, we answer all these childish questions with how. And we, as we grow up, we stop asking these questions, don't we? Because we try to satisfy that innate question within us with that's the way it is or that's how it is. That's just how things go. But it still leaves us without purpose. So science is great, isn't it? But it can only tell us how things are done, how things work. But it doesn't answer the question of why. But God speaks to us this afternoon from his word. And he says this. He says, all things were created through him and for him. All things Everything in this room now that you can see, 
everything in this room that you can't see, everything outside in the center that you can see and can't see, everything in the whole world and the whole universe. The purpose of everything, the Bible says here, it's made through Jesus, through him, and it was made for him. If I was to make a cake and, and someone is to ask me, what's the purpose of you making that? I'd have to say, who's it for, wouldn't I? That gives you the answer of or why you're making the cake, why there is a cake. Well, it's, it's for my friend. That's the purpose of the cake. Usually it doesn't get that far. Usually I've eaten it. But we need this. We need, who's it for? What's the purpose? And it says here that Jesus is the purpose. It's why we are. It's because of Jesus. And even our suffering, it's hard to take in, isn't it? Even your suffering. That's when we're tempted to think it's meaningless. There's no point. It's all chaos. I feel rubbish. But actually, we look at Jesus, and there we see God hanging on a cross. And in him, there's purpose in suffering. There's an answer. There's a reason to it. And so we're not to believe the lies that suffering is just meaningless. Actually, we find meaning from and through and in Jesus So I wonder whether you're asking these questions in life, the big why question, why anything? Well, hopefully, as we look at this passage, you'll be thinking, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus does make sense of this this question. And so if Jesus is the, the purpose, if everything is for Jesus... This question of why turns into a question of who, doesn't it? Because we, it's all well and good saying, oh, it's for this person. But the meaning is bound up in the person then, isn't it? So it's going to change what it is by who it is. It turns into a question of who. And we see in this passage that it's just, it's mind-blowing, this passage. The reason why we're doing this passage is we started the book of Colossians in the youth sermon, which was great, wasn't it? Yeah, some nods. Um, and so we're, we're kind of looking at this passage now. And the start of Colossians um, is all about thankfulness, is overflowing with gratefulness to God. And then we see where this comes from in our passage because of all that God has done for us in his son and we find out that his son is the reason why everything is he is what everything was made through and for and here are some of the things of who this person is who Jesus is well the first one in our passage is he is the he is the son who he loves so He is the son of the father, who the father loves. And he has a kingdom, brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's the first thing we see in our passage. That he is a son. 
He is in a family. It's crazy, isn't it, to think that the person who is above all, that everything you and me find our meaning in, isn't some distant dictator who's aloof from the universe. He's a loving family. He's a father who loves his son in the unity of the spirit. It's a beautiful thing. He's a son and he's loved. And he has a kingdom, so he must be a king, I suppose, where he reigns. And the next thing we learn is just absolutely mind-boggling. He is the image of the invisible God. So we've already seen there's God the Father and God the Son. But here we have God, who's invisible, and the image of God, who makes him known. And notice the very important word, which is T-H-E, the. See, this person, this son, isn't just a image of God. He's not the best image of God. He is the image of God. Another way to put it, if you want to know what God looks like, there is only one place you can go to see what God looks like. And this is his son. This is God the Son who makes the Father known. He is the image of the invisible God. And next thing, he's the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Now we might scratch our heads and think, firstborn, does that mean that he was before creation, but he was still born at one point? Was there a point where Jesus was not? And this is where we've got to uh, know a little bit other parts of the Bible, and we can't we say, no, that's not quite right. That can't be saying that Jesus once came to be, because he says to the Pharisees in John, before Abraham, I am. He says, I'm the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, the I am, who is always been, has been, and will be. So to say that at one point Jesus wasn't there in loving unity with his father... It's just absurd in that respect. So what does this mean, that he's the firstborn over all creation? Well, it's more of a status. We've been looking in our series at the moment in Genesis. And you see, as the descendants come, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all that, you see who is the heir, who is, has the status of the heir. And it, the right of the inheritance goes to the firstborn, the eldest. Usually there's some flipping around, which is quite interesting. But here, we see the firstborn as a title of Jesus to say he is the heir of all creation. All things are made through him and for him. And that's basically to say, yeah, everything is his inheritance. It's all his. He's got claim on it all. Just as if you were to come into inheritance. It's yours. So everything is Jesus's. He's the firstborn. Next, he's the creator. So I've already said, everything, whether seen or unseen, was made through Jesus. He was made through Jesus. And this shows a little bit of a picture about how God creates. 
Because we know God the Father, it's in our creeds. I don't know how Christian geeky you are, but it's in our creeds that God the Father is the creator. But how does God the Father create? Well, he speaks his word. He sends his son. He shines his light. This is all different images to show Jesus is sent to create from the Father. They've got a single purpose, but the Father creates through his son. And so we can rightly say, This beloved son is the creator of everything. Awesome, isn't he? Just our our minds just can't comprehend how big Jesus is. It's just astonishing. And he's the sustainer. It says all things are held together. So every moment that passes by is because Jesus is holding it together. He allows it to happen. It's all his and he's there sustaining it. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's, he sustains it by the power of his word. And so it's out of grace as well. Every moment we're alive, we're to thank God. Because Jesus is keeping us. Every breath is his breath, really. It's all his we just can't paint a bigger picture of Jesus. I think if we had to write down how big Jesus is, we wouldn't do half a job as what Paul the Apostle has done in this letter to the Colossians. We just have such a, such a big picture, an immense picture of the person of Jesus. And then we see that he's the head of the church. Now, how's Paul just gone a, a little bit crazy and he's just gone from just an immense stratosphere of this is how big Jesus is? And he says... He's the head of the church. The church meaning the people of God. A gathering like this. He's gone from saying Jesus is the head of the universe to the head of men and women here today. What's going on here? Has Paul got something wrong? Has he just kind of went into the wrong gear? Well, no. It's, It's our minds that need to go into the next gear, and are thinking about the church. Because the church has Christ as the head of it. Think about all that we've said about how big, how immense, how supreme Jesus is, and he's the head of this place. It's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. Because church is... Who Jesus died for. Church is supposed to be heaven on earth. It's supposed to be a little gathering of people who trust Jesus, who are made alive in him, who gather together to sing his praises. And so it is the most important thing in the whole of creation, isn't it? It's because it's where we recognize the true king of creation. And so it is a little outpost of heaven. Here today, as we speak about Jesus, as we think about who he is and what he's done, it is coming to the very deepest meaning of the universe. Because Jesus is the head of the church, not only head of the universe. We need a bigger view of church. Also, he is the beginning. So again, this is going from the idea of the technical word is primogeniture, I think that's how you say it. Basically, as we've looked at in Genesis, 
the firstborn, the one first, the one who is before, he has the authority. And just how they would have utter respect for their elders because of this uh, primogenitor, is who was before was greater. And it also says next that he is the firstborn among the dead. This is talking about Jesus' resurrection. He is the firstborn among the dead because Jesus Christ came, he lived as a man, and he died our death, the one that we deserve so that we can live. But God vindicated him. He said, he put a, put a big tick on Jesus' life and says, yes, that is good. And so he raised him from the dead as a proof that it was complete. And Jesus' resurrection, him coming back to life again after three days, is just mind-blowing again because he is the firstborn among the dead. He is the start of the new creation himself. So just as everything was made through him, his physical body is actually the, the very beginning of the new creation, where everything is made perfect, where everything is put to right. And Jesus is the center of that as well. And lastly, where we see again just the immensity of this, is Jesus is where the fullness of God dwells. The fullness of God dwells. When we look at Jesus as the image of God, we're not just seeing part of God. We're not just seeing a little offshoot of God. No, it says it's where the fullness of God dwells. You think again to the Gospel of John, and one of his disciples asks Jesus, Show us the Father, show us God, and we'll be all right. That'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, if you see me, you've seen the Father. If you have Jesus, you have the Father, because the fullness of God dwells in his Son. Now, this is a supreme Jesus, isn't it? I don't know how you thought about him before you came today, but we can just see how enormous he is, how great, how huge his authority is. There's, there is just, there's no God beyond Jesus. There's no authority above Jesus. Can we just see how awesome he is? I mean, some people, this is why it's very popular to think that Jesus is just a historical figure who was a good teacher, he was a nice guy, but pretty misunderstood. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? He says, God says about Jesus that he is supreme. He is just above and beyond our wildest dreams. Jesus of Nazareth, this man who walked the earth, was not just any normal man. He was God himself, becoming like you and me. But I wonder how your mind's ticking away as I just say about how big Jesus is, how, how much authority he has. Because in our society, 
we're very suspicious, aren't we, of authority. I mean, I'm, we can't help but feel this way sometimes, can we? Because time and time again, it seems like in the news, there's another authoritative figure that we trusted and let us down. And this goes from kind of a national scale, doesn't it? From various scandals in the newspapers or in the police or in the NHS or in various businesses. But it comes very close to us sometimes, doesn't it? In family or in school and in various ways how we're so suspicious of authority. And so as we crank up the level of authority, we think, I should be cranking up my level, level of suspicion. Is it a Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility? <laughs> I think it is. It sounds a bit deep for Spider-Man, doesn't it? But we think, don't they, the more authority someone has, the more we should be suspicious of them. Because can we really trust them with that much authority? And this is the way that we think, isn't it? And so should we think this way about Jesus? Do we need to crank up our suspiciousness of him as his authority is out of this world? Can we really trust him? Can we? On the other side of things, this passage hits home in the way it kind of explains our suspicion of God as well in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So in some sense, we're suspicious of authority on, in the right term, aren't we? Because we've been let down. We've been let down. And so rightfully... We shouldn't trust some people. But on a deeper level, it says that we're alienated from God. Sounds weird, isn't it? We're not green men away from God. It means that we're foreign. We're foreign to God. I don't know whether when you first came to church, I'm trying not to use so much Christian speak, but whether it just seemed like a load of babble. You couldn't understand anything. It was all foreign to you. You open the Bible and it's all like weird words that you don't get. Well, it says once you were alienated, you were foreign from God. He is foreign to you. And you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. So there's a deeper level that we mistrust God himself. It's not because he's not trustworthy. It's because we're his enemies is hard to take in but let's just see let's just take a moment to see if Jesus is actually trustworthy because that's what it boils down to isn't it because the thing is time and time again at the moment various people who are celebrities have been prosecuted, haven't they, for crimes they've committed or may have committed in some cases. And they're put on trial. And these people have hold a position of power of people have abused that power. And the case is made against them. And so often we cringe as we find out that it's all true. It's all proved true. 
But we see when Jesus comes, or when Jesus came as a man, he lived the perfect life, you know. He really did. So much so that in the week, well, on the day that he was to be crucified, his enemies, the ones who hated him and wanted to kill him, couldn't say a bad word about him. And you've got to think, who is this guy who's so pure that not even his enemies can put a bad word against him, which is true. He's put on trial by us, and just all the mud that we sling at him just won't stick. He shows himself blameless. But not only that, we see that he isn't selfish. He doesn't abuse this power that's given to him by his father. Instead, he humbles himself. It's just so different, isn't it, to everything we know of in our society and in our hearts. We see power and we're hungry for it and we're greedy with it and we abuse it. But when we see Jesus who has all authority, what's he do? He gives it up. He gives it up for you and me. And so he wins our hearts. And some of the ways we see in this passage of how Jesus has given himself up for us, in the start it says, we're rescued. It says that actually it's the Father who rescues us by his Son. In verse 13. Father has rescued us from the, king, uh, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And later on, it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption is one of, those, one of these words that we don't use so much at the moment. But maybe we still use it in terms of redeeming a voucher. You redeem a voucher. And it means you get your money's worth. You get what the voucher is worth. And it basically means buying something back. Redeeming something is buying it back. It requires a price. And it's bound up with forgiveness here, isn't it? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So actually, for us to be bought and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, a price needs to be paid because it requires redemption. We need to be redeemed. The price for our lives needs to be paid. And this goes deeper, doesn't it? A little later, when it says that we're made holy in his sight, Because from verse 21, once you were alienated, we were foreign from God, and we were his enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It's just bizarre, isn't it? It's a a famous quote from Jesus saying, love your enemies, isn't it? Some people think that's that's one of the 
most famous things about Christianity, let alone Jesus' sayings. Love your enemies. But Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus has loved me. And we have been reconciled. Now, reconciled is another word which maybe we don't use so much. But it's when there's enmity, when there's fighting between two parties. And to be reconciled is to have peace. To be brought back into friendship and fellowship with with one another. And so we see through Jesus we're bought, redemption, we're forgiven, we're brought into his kingdom and we have peace with God through Jesus. But how does this work? What did Jesus have to do for all this to be possible? What did this supreme Lord of all have to do if we're to have this? Well, it involved shedding his blood. Reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. It's just a few simple words there, isn't it? But just incredible, isn't it? That Jesus, who was before he was born as a man, he's been with his father in eternity. He was born and he became like you and me. I don't know whether you've taken a job lower than what you've done previously, but it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling to be in a status lower than you once were. Now just times that to the nth degree where you have the Lord of all becoming a servant, becoming mortal, becoming someone who has aches and pains. Even that is just phenomenal. But then the purpose of his life as a man was to die, to die in our place. And that's what the cross is. It's Jesus dying the death that we deserve so that we can have his life like we're singing in the songs earlier. And it's through his physical body. And through this, we become holy in the sight of God. Just amazing, isn't it? And so we can just see, Jesus has given everything for us. He's just so trustworthy. Isn't this the type of person that you would trust? I mean, we often have the most trust for those who do more for us. Like parents. Parents love their children so much and they say, oh, I'd do anything for you. I would. And they often do have to give up lots for their children. And so the child rightly trusts their parents because they've shown themselves so trustworthy, how loving they are. But can we see just how much Jesus has done for us? in dying for us so that we can be made holy, have peace with God, be brought into his kingdom. We see that he is trustworthy. And lastly, there's this funny little phrase at the end of our reading, if you continue in your faith. Now is this saying, this is only for you if you kind of pull up your bootstraps every day and try really hard And I say, right, I'm going to continue in my faith. Does your assurance in the Christian life 
rest on your on how well you're doing does it no it doesn't that's not what it's saying the if here is highlighting that we need to receive Jesus because that's all that faith is it involves action yes you need to act in faith but it's simply receiving Jesus because obviously for this to be yours you need to have Jesus you need to have him and so the way that you have him is you trust him which is another word for faith you need to have faith in him and if you do that all this is yours the image of God the ruler of rulers, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who is before everything, is your saviour. Who's made you holy, perfect in the sight of God. If you trust him, he is trustworthy. 